you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Zechariah, second to the last book of the Old Testament. If you hit Matthew, turn left. You've gone too far. We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3, and then we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, Lord willing, the next three weeks are going to be spent looking at six of these things. This is the title, Jesus Seen in Zechariah. So my hope is, and my, my goal is, I've got them laid out. I just don't know if the Lord's going to let me preach all of them. He's going to change. But way, the way it's laid out right now, we're going to look at three today, two next week, and then one the following week. And we're going to see, see, we're going to see six ways that we can see Jesus in this Old Testament minor prophet. Uh, there are eight visions in Zechariah. We, we could spend our time in those. There's a lot of already, not yet. There's a lot of prophecies that have been fulfilled by Jesus there's a lot of prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. There are some that have kind of one foot in either camp. Some, some has already been done and more will be done later. But I really don't know that that's our, our, our best use of time uh, in this book. Uh, again, we could camp out in this book and do a complete Bible study on it, but that really doesn't uh, lend itself to a Sunday morning message. So my hope is to show you these six ways that we see Jesus in Zechariah. Uh, this is borrowing from Warren Wiersbe's uh, breakdown of, of these six things. Uh, kind of took the way he's, he's laid those things out and kind of used those as a structure around which to build this. Not preaching his messages, but I'm kind of using his points of, of where he sees Jesus through the prophecies. And so I hope to show you those today, next week, and then the following week. Uh, some of you might have noticed that I got a little emotional this morning. Uh, that's just because every time Austin talks about food, I get... Uh, just kidding. Uh, I just want to say this. I said it in the first service. We, we are gifted here with an amazing worship team, worship ministry. It was that way before I got here nearly a decade ago, and it continues to be that way today. So uh, I just want to share that with you, church family. It's not always, uh, that doesn't just happen. That's a real gift of God uh, that he has really given uh, Westmobile Baptist Church uh, over the years of seeing people come through student ministry, uh, work right into uh, our worship team, and they continue to do an amazing job, and what a, what a great team that Grayson has and a great job that he does leading them. So, so again, today, my hope is to show you three ways that we can see Jesus in the book of Zechariah, and I hope to give you some insights into how we can really take those. Just because we see them there doesn't mean that it just automatically applies to what we do. We have to do a little work to make sure that we apply it. So if that's okay with everybody, we'll pray. We'll ask the Lord to speak to us, and then we'll dive into our first point. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you today would speak uh, to me, through me, in spite of me. God, that your word would ring out, that it would touch hearts and lives, uh, that we would not only see your son Jesus in these words of this prophet, but Lord, it would help us to see him better in the world we live in, uh, help, us, help us to be able to see him better in our lives so that others could see Jesus in us. So Lord, speak as we listen, bend our ear, prick our hearts, Get our full attention, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, number one, Jesus is seen as the shoot. Jesus is seen as the shoot. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. And again, we're not going to stand and read all these in bulk because I think it would, we would lose our place once we get into each specific point. Uh, Zechariah 3.8, he says, Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you, Indeed, these men are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant the branch. The branch, that's an interesting word. In, in the Hebrew, it is semach, and it means 
a bud or a shoot. That's where I got that from. It is the branch. It is a shoot. It's an off-growth. It's a growth. It's something coming off and growing. It's also used in Zechariah 6, 12. Uh, and then in Jeremiah 33, 15, he speaks of this same thing. He says, in those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to sprout up for David, and he will administer justice and righteousness in the land. Now, it's sprouting up for David. Uh, Isaiah would talk about that, that shoot and that branch also coming from Jesse. And here's the point. To see Jesus as Messiah, we need to start with the origin of the lineage of King David, which is Jesse. Now, it's not just the lineage of Jesse or the lineage of King David as some kind of royal authority, but it is prophetic. It is prophetic that he would come from the lineage of David. He would come from uh, King David. He would be uh, from King David, and he would sit on King David's throne, but he's not going to sit on the throne for a moment or a period of time. He is going to sit on the throne eternally. That's the big thing that the Jews missed when Jesus came the first time. They knew he would come and sit on King David's throne, but they saw him sitting on the earthly throne of King David. They, they wanted him to come, vanquish their foes, put them back on the top of the food chain of the nations so that they could enjoy life here rather than being oppressed by the Romans and different people. So this is a foreshadowing of the coming of Messiah. My servant, the branch. This is God speaking, and he's speaking about his son, which will bring about the full cleansing of Israel. So, so think of this, it's not a partial cleansing, it's not a momentary cleansing, it's not a, a one-time repentance, a one-time forgiveness, it is a complete renewal and replacement of all the old self with the new spirit. It's replacing what was dead with something alive. It's, it's really 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. Uh, by the way, in, in, the, in the Greek, if you read that verse and look at the Greek, it really means something that has never existed ever before. It's not a better you. This is, this is not five steps to a better you. This is a new you. This is a replacement. You are something that has never existed. Everything that is old is dead, and all that has new, all that is new has come. Listen to this as an interesting uh, prophecy and kind of confusing without context. But in, in Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to back up to verse 34 of chapter 10. Pause. Reminder, we didn't have chapters in the original text. We, they did that when they canonized Scripture to help us be able to locate stuff better. So sometimes when you, if you just pick up and read Isaiah 11, you're going to miss a, a, a really strong point of contextualization in the previous verse. So, and I'm not going to read this whole passage, but if you want to later, it's Isaiah 10, 34 through 11, 11. But here he's speaking of this root, and he says, this shoot. He says, uh, verse 34, Isaiah 10, He is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon with its majesty will fall. Now, that segues into verse 1, chapter 11. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Verse 4, he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Hey, listen, if y'all ain't paying attention, that's a bad dude right there. Listen to what he did. He's going he's to judge righteously, execute justice for the oppressed, 
strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. That doesn't mean he's holding a stick in his mouth like some kind of circus clown. That means that his very words will be like a scepter striking down on sin. And he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Verse 5, righteousness will, will be a belt around his hips, faithfulness a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. Verse 8, an infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. By the way, that's not prescriptive. That's descriptive, okay? That doesn't mean that you can literally get your... If you have a toddler today and you tell him to go stick his hand in a snake hole, that's on you. That's not on me, all right? This is describing the peace that only Christ can bring, only the King of kings and Lord of lords can bring. The land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Man, that'd be awesome. On that day, verse 10, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. Now, think about that, the banner with the people. The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. All of these things are prophetically spoken about of the end the, the reign of Christ on earth when all dissension, all uh, disruption, all wars will cease. He will bring peace because he is the shoot, the root, the branch. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus himself speaking to John in his vision says, I am the root and descendant of David. Now, if we're, if we're not careful, we take away our Baptist glasses a little bit if we put on our Baptist glasses, we can miss what he's saying here. I am the root and descendant of David. Y'all catch the, the, the dichotomy there? The, the almost contradiction that is, that is present in that sentence? How can he be the root and the fruit? How can he be the root and the descendant? He says this in John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, what Jesus was saying there, one of the seven I am statements in John's gospel, he is saying that I am the pre-existent one. There is only one pre-existent. Who is that? God. Jesus says to the crowd here, to the people here in John 8, 58, I am God because I was, am, and will be. He is not a past tense individual. He is a present and future tense individual. That's who Christ is. Therefore, he can be the root from which David grew, and he can be the descendant who came from David because he is eternal. This is the shoot, the root, the branch, but he's also the soon coming king. He's also the sovereign Lord of humanity, of, of all creation. He is God. That's the only way that he could be the, the descendant of David and yet be the root of David. And then he, when he speaks of himself as this banner, it called to mind John 12, 32. Jesus told them, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He is lifted up as a banner. Remember Moses when the snakes were biting the people and God told Moses, he said, uh, make a, a, a serpent symbol, put it on a pole and lift it up. And when the people look at it, they'll be healed. He was showing us Jesus. Jesus was put on a pole. It was a cross of Calvary. And he was lifted up like a banner. And all those who look upon Jesus, when we see the finished work of the cross, when we recognize that he is Messiah, come to take away the sin of the world, we submit to his authority. We know that we can be saved when we look upon Jesus on the cross, when we see that he is a banner lifted up. Because when he is lifted up, he draws all men 
to himself. I want to challenge you today. If you profess a faith in Christ, are you lifting Christ up in your life? Are you lifting the banner of Jesus in your life, on your social media, in your neighborhood, at your job, in your home, by what you listen to, by what you watch, by how you think? Are you lifting the banner of Christ so that he would draw all people to himself? Only the Son of God can be both the shoot and the root because only he is eternal. So we see Jesus as the shoot. Number two, look in verse 9 of chapter 3. Jesus is seen as the stone, not just the shoot, but also the stone. Look at verse 9. Notice the stone I've set before you, Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription upon it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. This is the stone that he speaks of. It is Messiah. He is saying that Messiah will come at the end and will fully restore Israel, not a partial restoration as we see happen, uh, by the way, when, when we're looking in Haggai and even Zechariah's time, when they, he sent them back and told them to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. That was a restoration, but that was a temporary restoration. That was not a permanent, eternal restoration. The eternal restoration is going to come when Christ returns, when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem where we will dwell. This is what he's talking about, this stone, this foundational stone that Christ is. Now, commentaries differ on this, but I believe that the seven eyes that he talks about there symbolizes the omniscience of Jesus, the infinite knowledge that he has as God. And the engraving is like the engraving of a cornerstone on the temples. If you go, by the way, even some churches now, on the cornerstone of the church, you can find either some kind of a, a placard or some kind of a uh, uh, an engraved uh, piece of metal or even an inscription in the actual stone. Some of you at your house, if you go look at the, the, the sidewalk right by the door, you'll see where they, somebody might have engraved uh, a, wrote a, a name or a date of when that house was built. I believe this also points us to Revelation when you see that on his thigh is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is talking about Jesus as the foundation of our faith, as the cornerstone of, of our faith. Peter mentions it in 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, and he quotes Psalm 118, 22 and, and Isaiah 8, 14, but he's speaking about this same thing that Zechariah is talking about in Zechariah 3, 9. 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, he says, so honor will come to you who believe. What, what that means is those who have truly put your belief, put your trust in Jesus. Not just a, a, a belief like, I, I believe it's going to be cold when we walk outside. Not just a, I believe the sun will rise in the morning, but I, I have put my complete trust and hope in the belief that he is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving. Now, I want to remind you again, there is, a, there is a change here. There is a shifting here. Honor to those who believe, but there's another group of people, those who refuse to believe, those who reject Christ. I, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I, I don't see God sending people to hell. I see that God lets us choose, and we choose hell when we reject Christ. Now, now, you can argue with me about that if you want to, but that's the way I see it. God, in his perfection, in his holiness, cannot be around sin, so you cannot come into the presence of God with sin. So he tells you, I have made a way, but you have to make a choice. I, I will draw you, but you have to choose. You have to make a conscious choice. Am I going to put my faith and trust in Christ, or am I going to choose to put my faith and trust in myself? 
And so then he quotes these two verses, Psalm 118.22 and Isaiah 8.14. The stone the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over. Again, the Jews were not looking for a suffering servant. They were looking for a glorious king. So for them, Jesus was a stumbling block. It was a trip up for them. In Acts 4, Luke talks about this stone. He quotes this verse. Acts 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So, so this cornerstone, this foundational piece upon which everything else in our faith is built is Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the firm foundation upon which we're to build our lives. But for the Jews of this day, he was an obstacle because they were looking for a warrior king rather than a suffering servant. Again, they didn't want him to suffer and die. They wanted him to rule and to reign. They wanted him to come in with a sword and, and lop off the heads of all of their oppressors and put them back on top. That's not what the first uh, coming of Christ was to be. That baby born in the manger rose to be a good, godly man who lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death, but he did not set Israel back on top of the food chain, and therefore they rejected him. So we see Jesus as the shoot. We see him as the stone. Number three, go to Zechariah chapter 9 and look at verse nine, verses 9 and 10. This is my favorite uh, of these three. I love, I love all these six ways, but this is my favorite of this section. Number three, Jesus is seen as the soon coming king. I cannot emphasize the soon coming enough. When is he coming, Brother Kevin? He's closer today than he was yesterday. You're closer to meeting Jesus one way or the other today than you were yesterday. Either you're going to die or he's going to come back. Either way, you're going to meet him. You better be ready. I hope you know him. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then he says some strange things here in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River and to the ends of the earth. It might be odd to us. It is odd to me when I first read it. Why would Jesus ride in on a donkey? What kind of statement is he making by riding in on a donkey? Because he's lowly? A donkey is a beast of burden? A donkey, you know, you don't have the Kentucky Derby for donkeys. Has anybody ever been to a donkey show? Now, I don't mean a political gathering. You might, uh, <laughs> we don't go to donkey shows. We go to horse shows, right? We go look at the proud beast that the horse is and, and we measure how, how many hands he is and or how many stones he, you know. We have all this, this, these horses have pomp and circumstance. A donkey is not that way. So why would a king ride in on a donkey? Here's the context that helped me. I hope it helps you. In these days and in this culture, kings would ride in on horses when they were going into war. They would ride in on donkeys during times of peace. Now, get this. Even though he was the suffering servant, 
He was still the Prince of Peace. Even though he didn't ride in on a horse with a sword like they wanted, he still rode in in peace. You know why? Because he's the king. And he's not just a king. He's not just some king. He's not some elected dictator. He's not some uh, person who was born with this uh, whatever genealogy that made him be heir to the throne. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is sovereign over everything. So when he rides in, listen to me, he rides in in peace. Why? Because you can't bring war against him. (laughs) Here's a spoiler alert. I have read the end of the book. We win. He is the king. Everywhere he rides into, he rides into in peace. Because nothing can come against him. Nothing can come against him that can have any kind of hope of victory. And if you don't believe me, look at 1 Kings 1.33, Judges 5.10, Judges 10.4, Judges 12.14, 2 Samuel 16.2. All of these will show you that the context of the day was that the king and his family rode on donkeys during times of peace. Now, this prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus came into Jerusalem for the last time during his earthly ministry. We talk about that and read about that all the time. I'm going to read that to you. Matthew 21, 1 through 5. When they approached Jerusalem, Jesus sent two disciples in, and this is what he told them. Verse 2, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet, hello, he's talking about Zechariah, will be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this, this telling is also found in Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. All four uh, of the gospel writers chronicle this event where he rides into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Now, Jesus isn't riding in to go to war. He's riding in in peace because he's the prince of peace. There's no war against him. 10, verse 10, goes on to explain this further. And again, if, you don't, if you've never really taken the time to really hash this out, these verses don't make a lot of sense. So I'm going to give you four things he says he's going to do and why that's important for us. Kings can do work, but only the king of kings can do all the work. I hope that's helpful. So first he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. Now, why does that matter? Why do I care about cutting off a, a, a chariot or a horse? Who cares, right? What he's saying is, The chariot was the primary vehicle of war. The horse was the primary animal of war, motor, if you will, of war. And he is saying, I will cut them off. Not, I will let them ride in and we will duke it out. They're done. They're done. That's the authority that he has. He will completely demolish the primary vehicle of war and the animal used for war. Demolish, disintegrate, destroy done. That's promise number one. Promise number two, the bow of war will be removed. Now, we don't think a lot about bows. Uh, We're not talking about deer hunting. By the way, I I sent a video to Hayden the other day, uh, a couple people I sent it to, where this guy shoots a dove with a bow. If you've ever ever shot a bow and you've seen that, that ought to hurt your feelings. (laughs) 
here's what I think would happen. If I tried to shoot a dove with a bow, I would shoot the arrow. It would miss the dove so badly the dove wouldn't even flinch, and it would come back and stick me in the top of my head or something. But we don't think a lot about bows because we don't live in that society. But think about what he's saying. The bow of war will be removed. The bow was one of the primary weapons of war for the day. This, you know, we went from like, you know, duking it out, like maybe grab a stone or something, maybe a stick, and then we got the sto- sword and we ah, 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 we're jabby jabby. That's what we were doing. That's our war. You know, we would just go out there and, go, ah, 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 and we try to st- you know, stick them more than they stick you. And then we got to maybe we had a spear, so we maybe throw that spear. Can't throw it real far. It, you know, it's not all that accurate. But then think of the game changer that came when they got the bow and arrow. Now, all of a sudden, like from way out yonder, he's just like, beep, and you're dead. And so so this, is a, this is a huge thing. For us, it would almost be like, you know, uh, the machine gun of war will be removed. The, the, the A-1 missile or whatever, you know, the, the, the F-22 Raptor, what he's saying is the, 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 the primary mechanism, the primary tool of war is going to be removed. He will remove the need for weapons of war. Number three, he'll proclaim peace to the nations. This is a message of reconciliation. We cannot be reconciled to God without this message of peace. And by the way, we cannot be reconciled to one another without the Prince of Peace either. Most of the calamity we have in life today, most of the calamity between nations today is due to a restlessness that comes from sinfulness and there can be no reconciliation until we are all under one banner and that banner is the Lord Jesus Christ the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords he brings this message of reconciliation to all nations number four his dominion will extend from sea to sea to the ends of the earth what he's saying here is that Jesus will control extended territory with no enemies of concern so, so let me go back and recap. He's going to demolish the vehicle of war, the animals of war. He's going to remove the weapons of war. He's going to bring a message of reconciliation to all nations. And he's going to control extended territories with no enemies of concern. That's the promise of Jesus' second coming in verse 10. Now, here's the, the, the irony. They rejected Jesus because he didn't come as... They wanted him to come, which was a, a warrior king. He came as a suffering servant. But if they never recognize him as suffering servant, they don't get to revel in him when he comes back as a commanding king of kings. He is coming back as they hoped he would come originally, but he's not going to set Israel up. He's not going to set you and I up. He's not going to set America up. He's going to establish his kingdom, and his kingdom will have no end. His kingdom will have no question. His kingdom will have no adversaries that try to come against it because when he comes back, he is going to set everything right. He is going to wipe away every sin. He's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to wipe away anybody that would come against him or come against his people. That's who he's going to be when he comes back. I want to make sure you understand me, church. The baby in the manger ain't coming back. The carpenter's kid ain't coming back. The suffering servant ain't coming back. The slain lamb is not coming back. The Christ on the cross is not coming back. The dead body in the tomb is not coming back. But I'm here to tell you, you can bet your last nickel, the king is coming back. The king is going to return. And when he does, he is going to set all of this other foolishness to the side. And you better be ready. We see Jesus as the shoot, the stone, and the soon-coming king. Let me close with this. 
when I read these and when I think about these, what does it mean that he is the shoot and the stone and the soon coming king? It means that he is uh, preeminent, preexistent. He is eternal. It means that he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. It means that he is the cornerstone on which we build all of our faith, uh, the cornerstone on which we put all of our trust, and he is going to return. And I believe it's going to be sooner rather than later. I'm not, I'm not trying to read the, the Da Vinci Code and any kind of prophecy and trying to come up with, with days and hours. I'm not that guy with the, the I don't have a, 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 chalk, a, a court board in my basement. I don't have a basement. I don't have a court board somewhere in the house with like pens and yarn and strings and little sticky notes and like verses and trying to, oh no, I read this verse. But if you read it backwards, it really tells you that he's going to come back. You know, uh, 24 reasons Jesus is coming back in 24. Don't buy the book. Unless you've got a bunch of bird cages you need to line or a bunch of fish you need to wrap, don't waste your time. Spend your money on toilet paper in case we have another COVID so you don't, you won't have any. Go ahead and stockpile instead of buying that book. When I read these things, he is the shoot, he is the stone, he is the soon coming king. It leads me to two questions, and I'm going to give them to you today. I want you to ponder these questions, and then I'm done. Number one, and I told you we're going to look at six ways we see Jesus in Zechariah. But none of those six ways matter how we see Jesus in Zechariah. What matters is this. Number one, how do you see Jesus? Zechariah, along with all the Old Testament prophets, saw him as Messiah, saw him as uh, the soon coming Messiah, that he would be Lord and King, that he would have dominion over everything and there would be no end to his rule. Others throughout the years and many today have seen him either as a myth, a fairy tale, or they see him as some kind of cosmic butler. They, they, I kind of refer to it this way. They see they want the rubber stamp Jesus. They want the Jesus that loves you unconditionally and allows you to stay in your sin and just goes, that's okay. I'll just, I'll just stamp approved on your sin and it'll be okay. I want you to look at me. I've read this book cover to cover in, in multiple translations. I have studied it intently for probably the last 20 years, but... but deeply for probably the last 12 years, 15 years. I mean, studied it, trying my best to figure it out. I want to know everything I can know about this book because I want to know everything I can know about its author. Here's what I'm here to tell you. That's that rubber stamp Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. I know people who have rejected him, and I want to say, well, tell me about the Jesus that you rejected. I may not want to accept him either. But when I see the Jesus in the pages of this book, When I think about the Jesus that I know that have walked into my wrecked life that I had made a mess of, that I had brought to shambles, he walked in and said, give it to me and I'll fix it. He walked in even though I had spent the majority of 26 years of my life spitting in his face. He came in and said, I still love you and I'll still take you and I'll still clean you. I'll still fix you and I'll still make you mine. When I see the Jesus that has walked through us through death and loss and heartache and disappointment and confusion and challenge, when I see that Jesus, I want to serve him. I want to know him more. I want to give him more. I want to give him everything. How do you see him? If you think you can have your sin and have Jesus, my friend, you are 
grossly mistaken. There is no Jesus and, it is Jesus only. Number two, here's the ultimate question that how you see Jesus will bring you to, and that is, will you submit to the king or do you want to remain at war with him? And you may say, Brother Kevin, I don't want to be at war with him. I just want to live my life. Hey, chief, that ain't how it works. There is no Switzerland when it comes to eternity. There is no middle ground. There is no fence that you can sit on. You're either in the family of God or you are an enemy of God. That's it. That's it. You repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus and by doing so you submit fully to the king or you remain on the other side of the battlefield with your weapons, pitiful as they are, trained against him. Romans 8, I'm sorry, Romans 5, 8 through 11. God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But then, and we, I've quoted that verse, so you've probably heard that verse a lot, but then go to the next verse, verse 9. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? You see, justification is just as if I'd never sinned. That's what happens when you come to Christ. He removes your sin. He takes away your trespass. He makes you a new creation. Everything is new. You are justified. In his sight, in the sight of God, you are justified by the blood of Christ. And if you are, then you will be saved through him from God's wrath. What is God's wrath? It is what is necessary to come against sin. Because God's righteous, because God is holy, because God is justice, he must have wrath against the things that are unholy, unrighteous, not justice. Verse 10, for if, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, Will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. You see, there, there are battle lines that have been drawn from the garden. Adam and Eve chose to break what God had told them. God told Adam, here's the rules. Pass it on to your wife. He passed it on and she didn't pay attention or, or whatever. The enemy came and said, did God really say? She questioned God. She wanted to be God and so she chose to sin. From that moment, there have been battle lines drawn. You may not be able to see them, but I promise you they're there. And everyone who has not submitted to the Lordship of Christ stands in opposition to the sovereign God of the universe. What Jesus did, watch me, what Jesus did is he walked across the battle lines and while we were yet sinners, he died for us. But it's not a blanket forgiveness. You can't just get it for free. You don't wake up. Some of us feel like we were, we were born on third base and we think we hit a triple. That's not how it works. Jesus, in his love, by his sacrifice, chose to come across the battle lines, die for us, so that we could put our faith and trust in him and we could cross the battle lines and be on God's side. If you don't choose to surrender to Christ, by default you are choosing to remain an enemy of God. If you're not sure what's going to happen, if you're still an enemy of God when Christ returns on Judgment Day, go back and read verse 10. Let me remind you of what he's going to do. 
demolish the vehicle and animal of war, remove the need for weapons of war, uh, bring a message of reconciliation, control extended territories with no enemies of concern. That's what the king is going to do. He is the shoot. He is the stone. He is the soon coming king. You need to figure out how you're going to respond to him. How do you see him? And if you see him as the risen Christ, if you see him as the king of kings, if you see him as the prince of peace, then submit to him. Otherwise, you remain his enemy. And I'm just here to tell you, it will bring God no joy, but he will destroy his enemies. He has to. If God doesn't destroy the wicked, he cannot be holy. If God does not destroy unrighteousness, he cannot be righteous. He cannot establish his kingdom until he demolishes every other kingdom in its way. One last statement and I'm done. If you remain God's enemy, and you can do that. I want you to hear me this morning. I'm not trying to force feed this to you. You can remain God's enemy. But here's the thing. If you choose to remain God's enemy, you had better prepare for God's wrath. But if you will submit to Christ, if you will just quit struggling and striving and failing if you'll just surrender to the Lordship of Christ, you can become God's child, an heir of God, a co-heir with Jesus. And if you do that, you can dive into God's grace and peace. How do you see Jesus? Will you choose to remain his enemy or will you submit to him? Would you stand with me? Our time of invitation, as always, is for anyone who needs to know Christ, who needs to make a public profession of faith in Christ to come. If you need prayer, you can come. If, if you just, whatever's going on with you right now, if you need to rededicate your life, if you need to come to Christ, you need to join our church, you can do all of that at this time. But specifically today, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Even if you don't need to come forward, I want you to do this right where you are. I want you to think to yourself, how do I see Jesus and will I submit to him or will I remain an enemy of God? Again, there, there, are no, there is no middle ground. You have to choose. You have to choose. Will you submit to Christ or do you want to continue to be God's enemy? Because there's no middle ground. So I'm going to say a short prayer. When I say amen, if you need to come forward, you come. If you just need to come pray, you do that. I would even go one step further. If you're holding a grudge against somebody and they're here and God's convicted you of that, go to them this morning and repent. Set things right. But while we, for just a moment, while we listen for God to speak, would you just think about that, those two questions? How do I see him, and will I submit, or do I want to remain God's enemy? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for this word that you've given. Not my word, God, your word. I hope that, Lord, I've just been able to, to expand on something, to, to give clarity to something that maybe required a little extra study. But God, I know that your word is, is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts down to the bone and marrow. So God, I pray that it would do that today. If there's anyone here without Christ, I pray that they would be cut, or that they would see their need of repentance and they would repent today. God, if there's anyone here that, that has not seen Jesus, I pray today is the day they put their eyes on him, that they would fix their eyes on, on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. God, I pray there's nobody here today that's foolish enough 
to want to remain an enemy of God. You said in Zechariah 9.10 that you're going to destroy the animal, the, the, the mechanisms, the, the tools of war. And God, I pray that you would let us lay our arms down today, repent of our sin, and come running to you. Holy Spirit, move in this place. Help us to be instantly obedient. And help us to see you as you are. Give ourselves to you. And we pray it in Christ's name.